The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Mike Coe, Steve Grasso, James McDonald, and Tim Seymour. Tonight on Fast, a record rally closing out the week on Wall Street. The Dow, S&P, and Nasdaq hitting new all-time highs. So should you ride this record run or is it time to take cover? Plus, Didi hitting the skids just days after going public. Chinese regulators taking aim. So who is really in the driver's seat on this trade? And later, Lordstown Motors tanking today will bring you the big headline that took nearly 11% out of this stock. But we start off with a star-spangled sign of the times. Before you fire up the grill this July 4th weekend, we've got some big news on the state of the American consumer. The jobs report coming in better than expected. The U.S. adding 850,000 new jobs. And people are getting paid more. Hourly wages for non-supervisory roles in leisure and hospitality industry up 2.3%. Huge gains. There, Bank of America reporting credit card spending is up 19% for over a two-year period for the week ending June 26, with growth in travel, entertainment, and dining out especially strong. So as we head into the long Fourth of July weekend, is it all fireworks for the great American consumer? Steve Grasso, kick it off. So payrolls, there's still some slack in payrolls. We're still about 6.7 million <laughs> below pre-pandemic. That's number one. So you have slack in the labor market. So we're not so worried about inflation just yet. People who have a job, people who have a job, keep the job. People who don't have a job are going to be coming off uh, aid in when? September, I think the, the number is. What's the extra check right now? $300. Jump in whenever you know them because I'm not so sure about the numbers. So $300 is extra <laughs> on top of unemployment, uh, on unemployment checks. That's going to be rolling off. So I'm a little perplexed. Does the economy keep rolling or do we see a pullback in September? So you're questioning. I'm questioning it right now. And and just to put a bow on my my thing, Costco, all time highs. Uh Nike, all time highs. XLY, discretionary, all time highs. You think it's toppy here? I feel like it could be a touch toppy. There are some pockets of strength, but I think in September, that's make or break, and that's real pivotal going into year end. I like the self-bow for Steve Grasso. Um, Mike, what do you think of the consumer? It feels like the consumer (laughs) is still ready to spend. They're getting signing bonuses for new jobs because the labor market is so tight. They've got the upper hand when it comes to wages. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Steve was pointing out that they, you know, that that total payroll is is lower than it was pre-pandemic. 
But wages for non-supervisory roles are higher. Actually, month-on-month, I think we saw 1% month-on-month. That may not sound like a lot. Annualize those kinds of numbers, and you begin to realize what kind of a demand there is for labor right now. So I actually think this is poised to continue. I mean, we are at all-time highs. We did see the VIX actually hit a post-pandemic low today of about 14 and a half. Mm -hmm. That actually is about the mean level for the VIX actually in all of 2019 to give some perspective to how much complacency is built in. Now, you could argue that complacency is, you know, basically signaling that, hey, maybe it is time to look down. And I think there is some sense to that. But actually, one of the things we do see is that when volatility starts hitting these low levels, you do tend to have a relatively extended rally. So I I think it could actually persist uh, possibly for another week or two. But I do think it is time to start thinking about hitting the pause button at least. Volatility being low at least allows you to buy protection relatively um, more cheaply than in, in other periods. Tim, how are you feeling about the consumer? And to Grasso's point, maybe these all-time highs uh, were anticipatory in, in terms of you know the stock market leads. And so maybe this is telling you something. Well, the bond market is telling me something, Mel. And, and so we had an in, we, we had a closing yield on the 10 year of 143 takes you back to March 3rd. That 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 doesn't jive with the fact that the, the economy is booming and that there's uh, a shortage of labor and that ultimately folks are getting paid more and it's going to trickle through to the economy. And there's inflation and there is inflation. We spent a lot of time talking about it and we've talked specifically. And I think today's payroll number shows you where services inflation is a very big part. Peter Bookvar talks about this. A lot of other folks that I think are are smart and tuned into this you know, this dynamic. And I think, you know, look, I, I, I get the feeling we're going to continue to see this liquidity dynamic, both in the consumer's wallet, um, that which is coming from the government and that which has come from the Federal Reserve, continue to support those consumer trades that are uh, right kind of first derivative. So it is Target. It is Costco. It is Home Depot and Lowe's. Look, they they had a tough uh, early late May, early June, have turned on a dime and are soaring to all time highs again. Yeah, a Lululemon, uh, even an L brand. So um, the discretionary spend to me is something uh, like Mike said, like, I don't think this ends anytime soon. And in fact, the underemployed and, and the fact that plants are closing because uh, they don't have chips or they don't have certain parts. I mean, those are things that those are transitory. And, and, and ultimately, I, I think the labor in the form of wages is something we're going to continue to hear about. Um, but I'm concerned that the bond market, which is usually a step or two ahead of the equity market, is telling us something. I, I hate the fact that we're the lowest yield in, in the 10 year at a time when the economy should be expanding since mid-March. So it sounds like you're bullish in terms of the immediate term, the near term, but you're cautious about a little bit out just because of what the bond market is telegraphing. James, where do you fall in this debate? Well, it's no coincidence that we're looking at the six consecutive months of job recovery gains, and that is the same time period since the vaccine was announced. And so we've got a march towards normalization in the labor market and in our economy, And the pockets that were hit hardest in COVID obviously will show the strongest resilience and recovery. But in the leisure and hospitality space, we're still 2.4 million million jobs below the February 2020 level. And so we can see an acceleration of recovery in those two sectors and look for opportunities there. And then also in the overall labor market, the labor shortage, if you will, from people falling off the map in terms of seeking employment. We're still 3 million uh, laborers below the February 2020 levels. And so as this recovery continues, you want to kind of look at where 
the pockets of accelerated recovery are happening and, and look for opportunities there. Overall, we're still looking at a distorted data set because of the benefits that people have received and the changes in behaviors and small businesses, which is obviously the biggest driver. And so if we can kind of separate out the distortions from the industries that were hit hardest and then those misprints of interpretation of data based on the labor uh, force being a little bit different because of the um, uh, benefits, I think I would just hone in on you know those industries that we can see recovery uh, for uh, investment opportunity. Grasso, you've been in names like a Capri and some others. I'm just wondering how you view um, your retail holdings, the consumer-facing holdings. So Capri I lightened up on. I'm still long it. I'm still long a substantial amount, but I lightened up on it because it had a tremendous move. It hit a wall at that $60 mark. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot more strength in a lot of these consumer names, but they are very much due for a pause. So I would take some chips off the table if you're in those spaces. Yeah. Tim, how about you? It's funny when you when you talk about Steve and his capris. I think of <laughs> aren't capris a very short pair of jeans? Either that or a <laughs> juice anyway. pouch. But that's a different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it is, and I probably shouldn't have gone there. I, I as I look at retail holdings, first of all, Walmart's a name that's been an underperformer relative to this group. We spent some time talking about Walmart in a bunch of different contexts. I actually think that this is uh, one of the more interesting stories. We spent time talking about Walgreens last night and some disappointing numbers, at least on their guide. Uh, I think you can find places where there are different reasons, obviously company-specific, where you've seen a little bit of underperformance. Uh, there's no question that the, the Costco targets of the world, because of initiatives they put into place two years ago, um, are reaping those rewards here. But, but to me, we have a case of an overshoot. We have a case of a consumer that is putting the, uh, the credit cards and starting to, starting to heat those up again. And you have a case where, look, I think the leisure stocks, especially some of the, the casual dining stores, are, are places where we are going to continue to see that follow through. People feel comfortable. They feel want it. They want to go out. They have a couple extra dollars to spend. Prices are higher. They're passing that on to the consumer, and they're not flinching here. And, and a lot of those trades, and James talked about where the hospitality sector is just starting to get going uh, from in terms of their, their infrastructure and their ability to put people back on the jobs. And I think those are trades that actually still have a lot left. Yeah. What is due for, for some catch up, Mike, in your view, in, in terms of the consumer or payment related trades? Um, American Express, for instance, that that's extremely exposed to travel. I don't know where you stand on something like that. I mean, where should we start looking? Yeah, I, I mean, I think American Express obviously is an interesting one. It's very different, yeah. uh, I think, than, than the other credit card companies. But uh, they are hinged very closely to travel. They're also hinged very closely to business travel specifically. And whether or not, you know, we were just talking about that earlier this week, whether business travel is going to recover, uh, you know, back to pre-pandemic levels anytime soon, that seems unlikely for, you know, some real, there have been some secular shifts in the way people are doing business as a result of all of this. I expect to see a recovery. I'm a part of that. The fact that I'm sitting here right here is amazing. I mean, I don't think I broke out my American Express card for probably 12 months straight, and I've been doing nothing but slapping that thing down for the last three weeks that I've been finally on the road again. But uh, I don't know that that's going to be enough, frankly. And I think, I think American Express probably deserves the discount that they have to the other payments. Another one that's at all-time highs, by the way. Yeah. When you look, when you look at something like that. And then just, uh, just a, one little add-on. Royal Caribbean, Carnival, uh, Norwegian Cruise Line, Delta, all these companies, these transports, are at higher booking rates than they were pre-pandemic. Right. Which is very interesting to see the boom in the economy that's still on the horizon. How can you still invest... James, in the strong consumer and the consumer that's that's itching to spend. 
Well, in the hospitality space and in the hospitality space ecosphere, um, like Mike, I too have been slapping down by American Express. I'm on the road too. It's my final trade. I like companies that can take advantage of people going back into leisure and travel on top of the season change, right? We're going into summer, so this would be a boost uh, season anyway on top of the reopening. And I like the travel sector and those pockets where we're going to see employment pick up, we're going to see uh, uh, spending pick up, and we're going to see recovery pick up. And you know, this is the area that we've been talking about. All right. Coming up, DD hitting a major roadblock. Shares dropping more than 5% in today's session as China announces a cybersecurity review of the company. We're live in Beijing with the details. And later, investors slamming the brakes on Lordstown Motors today, the big headline that took nearly 11% out of this stock. The details when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are following a developing story on Didi. Shares dropping 5% today as Chinese regulators take aim. Let's get to Eunice Yoon live in Beijing with all the details. Hi, Eunice. Hey, Melissa. Well, tech folks here are describing the investigation as coming out of left field. The authorities have said that this cybersecurity review is meant to guard against national data security risks, uphold public interest, and protect national security. Now, it's that last point that's being interpreted as a sign that this investigation is serious because the authorities specifically cited the national security law. And under this review, the company won't be able to uh, register new users, now, that move is seen as important, but at the same time, not really material to Didi just because it already has 90 percent of the ride hailing market here. Uh, longer term, though, it could become a problem if the investigation continues to drag on. Now, the big question has been about the timing of this announcement just days after the IPO. Uh, the regulators didn't explain their motivations, but uh, there's one popular theory uh, going around that Beijing uh, was not happy with the timing of the IPO so close to the 100th birthday of the Chinese Communist Party that this could be a political move. And uh, people here have been pointing out how Didi didn't have a listing ceremony itself, which is highly unusual. Now, the company, though, does say that it's going to be fully cooperating with this investigation. Melissa? Eunice, thank you. Eunice Yoon in Beijing. What's interesting is apparently in the S1, this is listed as a risk factor, although investors did not expect it to happen so close after the IPO. Um, in terms of impact, Tim Bernstein is estimating a loss of potentially up to 6 million users um, as long as this 
this investigation goes on. So it could impact growth projections for this new company. I, yeah, and, and, and so they freeze all new user registrations immediately for how long, we don't know. That's the least of the problems. The problems right now are, are really from a top-down perspective. What are the risk factors here? Has someone stepped outside of the box? Remember uh, the scuttled Ant Financial uh, IPO last year that was not 11th hour. It was like 11th hour and 59 minutes. Um, and, and this was a tersely worded uh, regulatory statement and the company scrambling around and, and basically saying whatever they need to say uh, to act as if they're they're showing the proper reverence and kissing the ring. I, like, I hate this. And I'm someone that said um, on some level, I, I'm not surprised or concerned necessarily about the regulators, especially uh, antitrust and, and some of the folks in China, especially around some of the Baba news. But uh, these, these headlines um, are, are coming too often and too out of left field. And to some sense that, you know, think of everything that was said in Beijing a couple days ago with the, the Biden summit. And, and to the extent that there's there's at least some, uh, you know, some feeling that China really is doing their best to to not only send a message globally, but send a message internally. Um, and, and let's be clear, cybersecurity risks could be almost anything, especially as they then could be labeled back to national security. It gives the, the regular almost any opportunity. So someone's invested in emerging markets. One or two uh, incidents sometimes can be taken as just that. Uh, I hate this trend. And honestly, I don't feel the need to go chase this one. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, Alibaba's underperformed the S&P by 45% since November. 45% for a mega cap growth company when, to me, their growth prospects and their valuation are as attractive as any tech company in the world. I, I don't I mean, like this. That is the question and, and the cloud that sort of looms over a lot of these Chinese issues. Despite the growth projections for this market, do you now question whether being a state champion company is actually a good thing, seeing that Beijing has put targets on all of these companies' backs, Mike? Uh, once upon a time, it was a reason to invest because China was backing these companies. Now it may not be. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is uh, you know, the kind of risk that it's really hard to invest in. Uh, you know, Baba was a name that I actually thought uh, could rebound, you know, four or five months ago, and clearly it has not. And I think that sort of presents us with the reality of situations like this, that if you think this is just a transitory thing, that this is all going to blow over, uh, don't kid yourself. Uh, this is a material risk, not just for Didi and not just for Baba, but for any company uh, where the government, when you have a one-party rule situation, decides that uh, they don't like what's going on. And that's a real, you know, you need to discount the valuations of businesses like that. Whatever the fundamentals might tell you otherwise, it's a material risk. And during the Trump administration, everyone was worried about the U.S. focusing in on that, targeting China. China is targeting themselves now. So for the U.S. investor, there's so many different opportunities, value, growth, risk curve or non-risk curve. The end result is just stay away from Chinese stocks for now. James, do you agree? I do not. I think that someone took a calculated risk and the risk was not rewarded. There is always going to be a push and pull struggle in power between capitalists and patriots. And at some point they have to partner together. Uh, it'll be a four-week investigation, and the bet that they wouldn't come in and do this loss, they'll go back into business. They will give the Chinese government the access to the data that they want. I don't like IPOs. Often they're most highly priced the day after. I call them insider profit opportunities. But I do think a company like this that has critically necessary data on the citizens that the government wants and maybe not 
has another channel to get it as fluidly uh, as Didi. I think they figure it out. I think that um, this risk goes away in the macro sense that the government will allow them to operate. Sounds like down 5% interests you potentially. I think perhaps a little bit more down. I do. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a, I don't think someone takes a company public with that much upside without understanding the potential for this risk. I mean, 5% is just a little bit. The IPO market has been relatively weak, particularly in tech with China. And I think that, you know, I think this company comes back, um, you know, maybe six months out after this is behind. All right. Up next, Lordstown Motors hit with another major investigation. The details in the trade when we come right back. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Lordstown Motors hitting the skids in today's session on news that the Justice Department is probing the electric vehicle company. The DOJ joins the SEC in investigating Lordstown Motors. The SEC is looking into the company's representations about vehicle pre-orders as it went public. Shares of Lordstown down almost 11 percent today. Mike, what's your take on, on this? Comp- Can it recover at this point? Uh, you know, or you're asking me, is it now in a death spiral, in other words? Uh, yeah, in a polite way I was asking that. <laughs> I guess I'm being less polite. Uh, yeah, this is real trouble. Uh, there seems to be a big pylon going on here. Although, I will say that there are circumstances where you do see that. You know, if you see one group investigate, it is not surprising to see another regulatory agency step in because they don't want to be seen as, you know, being offsides so that, you know, if for some reason um, everything turns out to be copacetic, uh, maybe not. But this is definitely a stay away in my view. It, this is also one that you have to watch out for. I, I do agree with Mike, but it does have a 24 percent short interest. So usually when you see a headline like this, you let it breathe. I wouldn't dive into it. Mm-hmm. But it's sometimes it's OK to be a buyer of this off of the heels of, of something like that. Yeah, I mean, you've got to see it sort of deliver on all the milestones it promises in terms of when it's going to go into production, when it's going to deliver the truck, James. But still, in the meantime, down 11 percent, down 54 percent this year. Do you see anything here? Often people come into these situations when they're pre-bankruptcy in the pennies and scoop up the assets. And so uh, death spiral is probably appropriate if we look at similar situations. There's been a cloud following this founder and a cloud following this business for some time. Um, and it's an important business and it's an important set of assets. But I think, you know, perhaps for investors, they should wait. Um, this is an interesting company because it was uh, it went public via SPAC, Tim. There are a lot of um, EV SPACs that have been questioned recently. And this is a company that has had a track record of opera. I mean, it's been in business, I believe, for about a decade prior to it going public. But but part of the story was really about ramping up technology and it wasn't mm-hmm. ready to do that. And look, I mean, you know, James pointed out that, you know, the, the going concern um, is is that this is going to be a going concern. Um, so debt holders are in a very different place than equity holders here. Um, this company told you uh, 
was it two, three weeks ago when we were hearing about the SEC probe, that they also um, had, if they didn't raise significant cash, they wouldn't be a going entity by the end of the year. Um, look, I, I, I just don't know why investors would be spending any time with this name, especially when you want exposure to some of these great themes in EV. Uh, I think this is a name you don't need to chase. Time for the final trades, and in honor of the 4th of July, we're doing star-spangled picks. Tim, what's yours? Yeah, happy birthday, America. It's Walmart. Get everything you need for that barbecue. You can go to the Walmart store. Oh, wow, you can actually order it online, e-commerce, etc. I like Walmart. It's underperformed this year, like the valuation. James. American Express, the stock is on a torrid pace, and I think it gets a tailwind going into summer with travel back in fashion. Mike Coe. Ford Motor Company. There's an old American standard company. And look, they're going to be much more profitable, I think, when they start to have a better supply on the light truck side. This is a company that's definitely trading cheap despite the big run. Grasso. What's the most American pie? Apple. Apple. Final trade. (laughs) That does it for us. Don't go anywhere. Options Action is up after this quick break. Mad Money fans, I'm Leslie Picker. Jim's off tonight, but you are in luck. We've got a special edition of Fast Money coming your way. Just ahead, we're serving up some summer stock sizzlers, what you should be doing with your money as we head into the second half of the trading year, including three big names you might want to bet on. Plus, is this the new target of the Reddit revolution? This name rising the ranks on the Reddit boards. What is it and how you can play it? And later, We want to hear from you. Tweet us your stock questions at CNBC Fast Money. We'll answer some of them live on air. But we kick things off with a record week on Wall Street. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ hitting all-time highs as we head into the holiday weekend. So where are we headed from here? Let's break it all down with CNBC contributors Megan Chu, head of investment strategy at Wilmington Trust, and James McDonald, CEO of Hercules Investments. Thank you both so much for being here. So, James, I want to start with you. There's this stat from... Bank of America that said that the first half annualized inflow to global stocks of $1.2 trillion is more than the cumulative inflows of the last 20 years. So as we look ahead to the second half of the year, is there still capital left on the sidelines to put to work in stocks? Well, there's certainly an expectation for the momentum to continue. The consensus, consensus estimates Uh, for Q3 and Q4 earnings growth is 61.9%, which is the highest number since 2009. And so there's an extraordinary expectation that the momentum from reopening will translate into consumer demand and earnings in the S&P 500. And based on that expectation and the consistent and persistent record highs that we're seeing in the indices, Um, all indications point to that momentum flowing through. Now, that money being put to work, it's somewhat of a distorted number. Obviously, we know that many Americans had additional funds put in their pockets through stimulus programs and at the same time increased their savings rates last summer and last spring as COVID hit and there was a lot of concern. And so by combining those two factors, we have this momentum and enthusiasm and encouragement going back to work, as well as a bolstered pocketbook. That coupled with the increase in jobs and increase in demand for services from those job areas and hospitality and travel and others 
procurers like, and you get this combination of factors um, that drives that capital and drives the stocks. And Megan, James brings up a good point, which is that earnings season is actually going to start uh, in just a few weeks' time. I can't believe it's already that time again. Uh, But what do you think uh, are certain sectors that are poised to prosper uh, from this earnings season? Well, looking out over the next earnings season and beyond to the next 6 to 12 months, which is our typical time horizon, we are expecting the cyclical trade, the value trade to resume leadership. Um, A lot of it depends on interest rates and the trajectory of interest rates. Our view is that the 10-year yield has no business being at 1.4% or or even anywhere below 1.5%. So we're expecting that to move higher. Um, I do think in conjunction with the excess consumer savings that James mentioned, that will be really key for some cyclical areas of the economy for boosting earnings, um, which when you're talking about these types of earnings figures, uh, the surprise to the upside or to the downside, but, but I would guess more to the upside, could be fairly significant. So that could be another catalyst for equities uh, heading, heading forward. And we're, we're bullish on the equity market. Uh, James, what do you think are the best uh, sectors over the next six months? It's a great question. What we look for is combinations of factors that drive growth and momentum. And I think we're entering the summer season. In any normal summertime, you're going to see areas such as travel, hospitality, and leisure benefit from the demand in those areas rising. We have that coupled with the fact that we're just getting out of this funk called COVID-19 Businesses are opening again, theme parks are opening again, movie theaters are opening again, masks are coming off. And so there's going to be an extraordinary move in hiring in that space. I think that also drives energy back up. We saw some catastrophic losses in energy, a big recovery there. I think that the common sense is that we're going to be getting out on the roads and traveling and demanding and needing more energy. And then finally, we saw an abatement of the spectacular rise in crypto. Um, I think crypto had such a cult following and had such an extraordinary run-up. The demise was predicted all over the place. I think it's somewhat stabilized, and I think that the enthusiasm and the broad investor investor space that goes beyond traditional stock investing is persistent. I think a lot of people were waiting for crypto to come down. I think that crypto perhaps could get a second life for going to the moon. I think that's the expression uh, that a lot of crypto followers follow. And so I would be very interested in seeing how crypto bases and then has a, uh, perhaps a second half year recovery. Yeah, I think, sta- I think stabilization for crypto is, is a little different when you're talking about crypto versus uh, equities or, or even bonds. Uh, but Megan, the one sector that you both agree on is energy for the second half of the year. Uh, but what other sectors do you think are, are going to benefit here? Well, we like materials, which are a similar story to energy. We really see the uh, global economic recovery driving demand for commodities, um, energy products, and and other um, companies in the material sector benefiting from that. Energy materials have also had a great run. Um, But if you look at valuations on a historical basis, they're still relatively attractive based on, on the rest of the index. Financials, um, and specifically banks, are another area that we really like. We see loan growth picking up. We expect this to continue. Um, we've had banks pass uh, with, with flying colors, the stress test, and basically get the go-ahead for capital deployment. So we expect dividends to move higher um, and buybacks. 
And then back to my comments earlier on interest rates and the yield curve, we do see the 10-year moving higher, the yield curve uh, steepening or at least staying as steep as it is. And that would be a very favorable environment for banks. James, as we kind of look at the existing market environment right now, uh, there is this backdrop of inflation concerns. You, you mentioned crypto as a stabilization, but, you know, there are pockets of the market that are, have been experiencing volatility uh, and have kind of spooked certain investors about pockets of excess and so forth. Uh, there, of course, is COVID, which uh, hasn't completely gone away yet. Uh, and, of course, the Delta variant, which is a significant risk uh, out there. Do you believe that any of those headwinds uh, will be significant in the face of the current market environment? Or do you think that investors will brush those off uh, and focus on other areas? It's a great question. And we have to look at the behavior post-COVID of the stock market in ways that we've never looked at it before. This is not your grandfather's S&P 500. We've had extraordinary innovation drive huge valuations in businesses, the S&P 500 is dominated by the tech story, and then investors have become more savvy. We've seen more rotation between sectors and between pockets of opportunity in the stock market than we ever have seen before. And I think the rotation looking for the bull market continues. The momentum that we've seen has catapulted indices to new record levels. We have not seen a 10% correction in the S&P 500 since COVID hit. This is different than in any other period of time where we had that much disruption in a short period of time. If you're in the camp that there was a recession, the recovery was faster than any other recession in history. And that momentum continues to play out in a way that gives us an expectation uh, that brushing off rising consumer prices to record levels, rising inflation and rising uh, valuation levels the market brushed these areas off, and so I consider uh, the sophistication of today's investor or the persistence of the bulls in the market uh, will find opportunities where I'm looking for particular risk for the second half. Obviously, we want to see if inflation comes back up and the Fed is under the impression that inflation needs to be put in check. I think we might get a surprise rate hike or at least indication of a potentially sooner rate hike than we expected. I think there's geopolitical risk. We've got new leadership in the Middle East. We've got new leadership in the U.S. And I think that there's risks surrounding cybersecurity. The new Cold War is an electronic war, and we don't know at any point when we could be vulnerable and susceptible to an attack. And then we have the seasonal pullback in August. If we are old school and look at stock markets, uh, the old selling made it work, and we think that in August there's a preponderance of opportunity for a slowdown. If we get employment continuing, you know, we've had six record months, excuse me, six consecutive months of record gains in uh, recovery of employment. If employment comes down below 5% is projected to go low over 5%, the Fed's going to come out and say we don't need to continue to keep pressure, uh, uh, excuse me, keep pressure off of interest rates. And we may get, you know, um, a change in monetary policy stance. All these things are going to probably be the arbiter for how the stock market behaves in the second half. So this point, may, this time may be different, but uh, the one constant across history is that there are always significant risks out there. Thanks for laying those out there for us, James McDonald and Megan Shu. We're just getting started on this special edition of Fast Money. Up next, Didi hitting the skids, the ride-hailing giant falling more than 5% today. We'll tell you what had investors driving out of this name. And later, AMC tumbling as short sellers take aim. And get this, it's no longer the most talked about stock on Reddit. 
We'll tell you who just took that crown, all of that and more with a special edition of Fast Returns. Welcome back to this special edition of Fast. I'm Leslie Picker. Didi pumping the brakes today. The Chinese ride-sharing giant taking a tumble amid a new regulatory crackdown. Let's get to Christina Partsinevelis with those details. Hey, Christina. Well, talk about timing, right? This crackdown literally just comes two days after Didi's successful U.S. IPO and the Communist Party 100th anniversary celebration. So regulators are saying the review is in order to prevent national data security risks, maintain national security, and of course, protect the public interest. But this time, it's the Cyberspace Administration of China that's cracking the whip, whereas in the past, it's been the State Administration for Market Regulation. Didi was also ordered to stop registering new users, but keep in mind, Didi already holds roughly 90% of the ride-sharing market in China. And the ride-hailing app isn't the first to come under the watchful eye of Chinese internet regulators. Beijing is proactive in restraining the growing influence of China's largest internet, internet corporations. So you wonder why? Because these internet giants gather up information daily on hundreds of millions of users and China wants to tighten the ownership and control of that data. So Didi is now one of at least 34 companies that have been ordered to rectify their anti-competitive practices over the past year or so. Companies on that list for too much market dominance, that would be TikTok owner ByteDance, search giant Baidu, JD.com, and Tencent. And those are just a few that I could put on the screen. And let's not forget the record-setting fine of $2.8 billion against tech giant Alibaba over alleged anti-competitive behavior. The Chinese central bank also ordered an overhaul of Jack Ma's aunt group, a fintech titan, and all of these investigations point to China's desire to curb the power of its internet leaders, but only after they grew into tech behemoths. Leslie? Thanks, Christina. It's unclear exactly what prompted this current crackdown, right? The Chinese government didn't say if they did anything in particular or why now. That is the very important thing, too, that, that they've been completely vague about the entire process. The, those three points that I listed off the top, the fact that it's about protecting national security and the public interest, that's all the details that we really got. And this is the first time this cybercrime uh, group is putting forth such a, a strong stance against a company. So there's a lot of unanswered questions uh, in regards to this, which is why it's so vague at the moment. Yeah, unanswered questions. Hopefully we can pose them to our next guest. Thank you so much, Christina, uh, for that comprehensive breakdown there. Uh, so for more on China's crackdown on Didi and other aspects of the Chinese Internet tech economy, uh, we are joined by CNBC contributor Duardic McNeil, senior policy analyst at Longview Global. He also served in the Obama administration at the Defense Department, focusing on China security relations with the U.S. Duardric, thank you so much for being here, uh, especially with the case of Didi. What is the signal that you think the Chinese government is trying to send? Thanks for having me, Leslie. Look, I think there are still a lot of unknowns, and there's certainly a lot of layers behind this announcement. But let's take them at their word that, that they are concerned about how Didi collects, stores, and secures data. Didi has been deemed a critical information infrastructure operator. And by, what, and by that, China means they are very concerned about the amount of Chinese citizens' personal and consumer data that's being housed uh, with, with Didi. And to be clear, I think Didi has come under scrutiny before about data. You'll recall that 
uh, two of its uh, drivers uh, murdered after a, a sexual molestation case uh, riders. And so there's been a lot of complaints about how this data is used, whether or not this data is secure. DDs come under scrutiny for pricing schemes, for discriminating between ride hailers, whether or not they have an Apple or an Android phone. So this is not, for those who have been watching, uh, this is not a surprise that they will come under scrutiny. And DD itself, to their credit, listed some of these concerns in their prospectus. So they were very clear that they expected to be visited by the regulators, but probably not the Cyber uh, Space Administration. But it makes sense that this would be the case that would go to the Cyberspace Administration. Yeah, I, I actually looked that up because the timing is interesting. As Christina mentioned, they went public just two days ago. Uh, and then all of a sudden you see this news come out. And so in their perspectives, they did note that in April 2021, that Chinese regulators, including the Cyberspace Administration, convened 30 Internet companies asking them to evaluate their businesses to see if it might violate anti-competitive policies. They were, of course, one of those 30 companies. And they said that their self-inspection discovered that they may have problems and may have issues that would run afoul of regulators. So do you think that there is a chance that they knew that this was coming uh, before it it came out? I'm just curious, kind of given the timing of their IPO. Yeah, hard to say, but I would imagine that they had some idea, Leslie. But you raise an interesting point, the difference between how this was handled versus how Ant was handled. And I suspect, again, the Chinese government could have shut this down at any point in time they wanted to. But unlike Ant and Jack Ma, it seems to me that Didi has been playing ball, saying all the right things and doing all the right things and have not become a political pain in the backside of the Communist Party. And so they let this IPO move forward. But I think the government has also learned something from this IPO. And that is, despite all of the toxicity in the U.S.-China relationship, U.S. investors still had an appetite for this Didi IPO. And that will communicate a lot to Beijing. Hmm. Interesting point there. And, you know, they just showed a graphic on the screen reminding our viewers that 90 percent market share Didi has uh, in terms of ride hailing. So certainly not too surprising that that's drawing attention from Chinese regulators. Dwardic McNeil, thank you so much uh, for your perspective. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Leslie. Still ahead, is this the next big target for the Reddit trade? This stock getting a lot of pickup on the Wall Street Bets board. Uh, You can see it's uh, actually traded lower over the last few days or so, but we will bring you that name ahead and later. Stranger Things for Netflix? The stock basically flat on the year, but is that about to change? We're streaming into that trade. Stick around. We're back right after this. Welcome back to this special edition of Fast Money. I'm Leslie Picker. Robinhood is preparing to go public, and that's a big deal for the retail investor. But it could also come with some big risks. Let's get to Kate Rooney with more. Hey, Kate. Hey, Leslie. One big risk here. More of what happened back in January for Robinhood. In that risk section of the S1, Robinhood talked about customer dissatisfaction, litigation, as well as congressional investigations around GameStop. They also highlighted the need to raise capital pretty much overnight in order to meet deposit requirements. Bottom line, Robinhood says, quote, we cannot assure that similar events will not occur in the future. And at the time, Robinhood was able to call up its venture capital investors to secure more than $3 billion. That deal was in convertible debt at a 30% 
discount to the upcoming IPO price. And as a result, Robinhood reported a $1.4 billion loss for the first quarter. That had to do with that debt deal. But as a public company, a similar event could hit shareholders. Robinhood says, quote, when available cash is not sufficient for our liquidity and growth needs, the startup might need to engage in equity or debt financing, financing, they say, to secure more funds. They cannot be sure that will be on attractive terms, as they put it. And if additional funds are raised through issuing equity or convertible debt, Robinhood stockholders could see dilution. Leslie, back to you. Okay, so Kate, you bring up a really interesting point because normally in these prospectuses, the risk factors are largely hypothetical. It's like if Santa Claus were to hack into our systems, you know, we could see a material adverse effect to our price. I mean, with these, these actually happen. The risk factors, they're not hypothetical. They happen and they happen in recent memory. So does that change the risk profile of Robinhood relative to other companies that may be out there? Oh, this was a big event for Robinhood. You remember, like we mentioned, they raised a massive amount of money within a couple of days in order to keep the company afloat. And at the time, the CEO called it a Five Sigma event, which basically meant it is a one in 3.5 million chances of something like this happening. The idea that it would be in the prospectus as a potential risk of happening again, I think, caught a lot of investors or potential investors by surprise. <laughs> Excuse me, sorry, dog barking. <laughs> but it caught people by surprise. That's another it risk. Caught your dog by surprise too. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of like, risks I, I don't, in the, I don't the agree perspective with that, that math of the black swan event. <laughs> <laughs> she read the prospectus and uh, has thoughts on it. But <laughs> we're open to any. A lot of risk thoughts. though in that. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) All right, Kate, we appreciate it. Uh, Take care and have a great 4th of July weekend. Thanks, Leslie. Let's talk more about Robinhood's big plans to go public. Joining us now is Justin Zen, co-founder and president of ThinkNum Alternative Data. Justin, great to chat with you again. Uh, I'm curious what the sentiment is right now on Robinhood with regard to, or on Reddit with regard to Robinhood's IPO. I ask because they say in their prospectus that they're allocating anywhere from 20 to 35% for retail investors. So do retail investors actually like the idea of this deal? Hey, Leslie, thanks for having me. Uh, So right now, the sentiment's really interesting. Um, So Robinhood's not public yet, but the the chatter on Wall Street bets has already been tremendous, uh, more than uh, actually like any other stock on there um, that currently exists. Hmm. Um, Most of the sentiment is relatively positive, but there's still um, a large number of the community that remembers the GameStop fiasco. um, And the sentiment there is obviously quite negative. So I think it's going to be really interesting um, when the retail audience gets the chance to participate in uh, an IPO in such a way, which is uh, quite, quite rare. So did I hear that right, that the chatter about Robinhood is actually more than any other stock on the platform right now? Uh, Right now it is, yes. Wow. And uh, because I think you bring up a good point. And, you know, as someone who followed that GameStop saga very closely and and found, uh, you know, some late evenings on the Reddit boards, I I did notice that there was a lot of commentary even back then about Robinhood, its prospective IPO and what that might mean. Um, Just kind of broadly speaking, do you think retail investors are going to be bigger participants in IPOs uh, if they have more access to it? Is IPO something that people are even talking about being interested in in getting allocation to? Um, Or do you think this is kind of more of a Robin Hood specific aspect to their deal because of the nature of their business? 
Yeah, I think uh, more retail investors uh, will have more access to IPOs. I think uh, Robinhood is being a pioneer here in a way. Um, but I think retail investors also have to do their own due diligence. Um, it's kind of like just because something that wasn't previously available is now available to you doesn't make it a good opportunity. Um, recently, IPOs, especially tech IPOs, have done very well, but uh, there were many there are many that have not as well. So uh, I definitely encourage uh, all all investors to really do their homework. Yeah, and we've been we've been teasing this all show. In addition, obviously, to Robinhood, which is sounds like it's gotten a lot of attention uh, on Reddit this week. What other company, what other new name is rising through the ranks in terms of trending topics? Yeah, so one name uh, that's cracked the top 20 uh, recently is uh, is Alibaba. Uh, Alibaba got hit hard in the tech sell-off a few months ago, um, but uh, it's in the top 20. If you look at the alternative data, uh, they've actually been expanding very heavily in the last uh, two months. The number of job listings they have is up over 40 percent. So the company is in uh, pure expansion mode. Um, and yeah, and I think Redditors or Wall Street bets are taking notice. Huh. It appears to not have moved the stock price yet, but uh, a pretty big float for Alibaba at this point in time. So it's definitely one uh, to keep an eye on. Justin, we appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Still ahead, Bezos takes a bow. The Amazon founder stepping aside as a new CEO takes the helm. We'll break down what the change at the top means for the future of this trillion-dollar tech titan. And don't forget to send us your questions. Tweet us at CNBC Fast Money, and we just might answer you on air. We're back right after this. Welcome back. It's the end of an era at Amazon. Jeff Bezos wrapping up his last trading day as the CEO of the company founded over three decades ago. Let's get to Deirdre Bosa with more on what's next for Amazon. While it is always day one at Amazon, Monday kicks off a new era. New CEO and Andy Jassy, new guiding principles, and also fresh challenges. Jeff Bezos created some $1.7 trillion in shareholder value over the past two-plus decades through relentless customer obsession and a startup mentality that persisted even as it became one of the biggest companies in the world. Jassy, though, begins his reign with a somewhat softer approach. Empathy and a goal of becoming Earth's best employer, those were added to Amazon's leadership principles yesterday as the company has more than just customers to obsess over these days. There's its growing workforce, labor activists, regulators, and lawmakers all scrutinizing its size and influence. As always, of course, there are still investors looking for ever more growth at a time when Amazon is facing more competition in the cloud, its profit engine, and e-commerce sales that are set to slow post-pandemic. Bezos is executive chair. He's not going anywhere. He will still be involved in major decisions, but it will fall on Andy Jassy to navigate this new delicate balance. And Jassy, not Bezos, is likely to be the one to face Congress and antitrust pressure, much in the same way that task has fallen on Alphabet's Sundar Pichai when its founders stepped back. There is a general consensus, though, that if anyone can follow Bezos, it is Jassy. He has been there since almost the very beginning. He has pioneered its cloud business. And as for building Amazon's next pillar, well, Bezos hinted just before he left that that could be media and entertainment through Amazon Studios. And that task will fall to Andy Jassy. Back over to you. 
Huh, interesting. A large task ahead of him for sure, Deirdre. Thank you. Andy Jassy set to take the reins as chief executive this Monday, July 5th. The date with significance. Amazon was incorporated on this day 27 years ago. So what can we expect from the Jassy era? Loop Ventures founder Gene Munster joins us now. Hey, Gene. Hi, Leslie. So Deirdre laid that all out quite well for us. And as the Wall Street Journal describes it, Andy Jassy is going to be filling some of the biggest shoes in business uh, coming on the heels of Jeff Bezos in that role. Given how the tech industry is so often characterized by this idea of the cult of the founder and the ability to kind of move fast and break things, I mean, does this change the game for Amazon or is it already just such a mature company at this point that as long as they can succeed in succession, it will be okay? It does change, and I think you hit really the pressure point of this whole conversation, which is around culture. And the analogy I go back to is what happened with Apple and Tim Cook and Steve Jobs and that uh, transition. And it was important for Apple to maintain its culture of excellence. And so they created what was Apple University. It is a program where employees can learn about the things that Steve Jobs was passionate about. And so uh, Tim was there not from the start, uh, but was there from the mid-90s and was a good transition. I think that Andy uh, sets up that culture transition better than anyone else. He has been there almost from the start. He is uh, considered by insiders Amazonian, which is, I think, the highest uh, uh, cultural identification that Jeff Bezos could give someone. And ultimately, I think that that is his biggest challenge. And so then the question is, what is the culture of Amazon? There was that change that Deirdre mentioned around the addition of empathy. I think that that's consistent with Jazzy's. Uh, he's a little bit more uh, soft-spoken. I think that uh, he is a better listener than Bezos. And so I think that plays into it. But that's not really the center of the culture. The culture is, you talked about, move fast and break things. Amazon's culture is about innovation, and we can talk about the areas that they need to continue to innovate in. And I suspect that that roadmap is in place, and uh, my bet is that he's going to be successful at extending the company's uh, winning uh, over the last decade, two decades. Okay, well, what are those areas of innovation that they need to work on? So uh, I think it starts uh, with fulfillment, which might surprise some people because it doesn't seem very glamorous. But when you think about what has really propelled Amazon, it's been partially the marketplace, but also just the speed that they get their products to people. And the fulfillment question over the next decade is going to be beyond fulfillment centers, which they've done a good job of building over the last five to 10 years. It's going to be about replacing machines, uh, humans with machines, and not just in fulfillment centers, but also in uh, final delivery. They have a project going on. Uh, that is uh, doing that to the home. So I think fulfillment's one big area. Another obvious one, given Jassy's background, is AWS. About 20% of computing globally is done on the cloud. That number in a decade is 30% plus. And a last big area, and I'm staying out of the content because I think uh, I'm not as optimistic that that's going to be a game changer for Amazon. But I think the last big area that will be a changer is what's going to happen in brick and mortar. And uh, obviously, we've taken a step away from brick and mortar over the last year. I think uh, people will slowly re-engage there. And if you look at the track record of brick and mortar over the last decade, the most compelling consumer experience has been drive up, which has been uh, really the result of the past year. 
But Amazon has an opportunity with these Go stores really to change the way that things are inventoried in stores and the friction that you have make it essentially frictionless going in and out of the store. So I see those three, fulfillment, AWS, and what they will do at brick and mortar as juicy opportunities for Jassy in the next decade. As you think about succession in tech and the timing of this transition in particular, do you think that Bezos is bequeathing a CEO role uh, for a company that's that's in good shape to fulfill, no pun intended, uh, those various innovation pillars that you laid out? Uh, or is it going to be more of an uphill battle uh, given you know the face of regulation, given the face of competition uh, for Amazon to to really get where it needs to be, especially in investors' minds? Well, I'll add another piece that is, we talked about the roadmap, another important piece that Bezos has laid the groundwork is is educating investors about how to treat them when they go into investment mode and not to penalize their market cap. And so I do think that the company is in a good position because I think that they can go into multi-year investment phases and not necessarily hurt retention with the stock going down. So I think that that is very important. You talked about the uh, competitive piece. I think I don't want to largely dismiss the competition. I would say that if you and I were going to start a business today and we were given $25 billion to compete with Amazon, (laughs) I'd promptly return the money to the (laughs) investors. And so I'm not as concerned about uh, the competition, but I think that uh, around legislation, uh, excuse me, uh, regulation, I think that that obviously is an unknown and Uh, I I think it is a a small impact about their fair dealings with their third-party sellers. That's kind of at the the center of the bullseye of regulators. Uh, But that is something we're going to hear a lot more about in the years to come regarding Amazon. Your uh, your comment about returning that $20 million to create a company to compete with Amazon and you returning that because there's no way to compete with Amazon is a clip that I think regulators are going to be using uh, when they talk about the anti-competition uh, involved. But we really appreciate your commentary, Gene. Thank, Thank you. you so much for joining us and have a nice weekend. Up next, we're tackling your questions. One investor wondering if it's time to take a bite of Apple. We'll get some answers when this special edition of Fast returns. Welcome back. We're coming up to the top of the hour. Let's get to Rahel Solomon with a look at what's ahead on the news. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Leslie. Yes, coming up on the news, the desperate search in South Florida nine days after that condo building came crashing down. Now there are new concerns about a hurricane headed towards the coast. We are live from Surfside, Florida with the very latest. And help wanted to stop hackers inside the boom in demand for tech talents to defend company assets. All that, plus a major U.S. track and field star suspended ahead of the Olympics. Now, what this means for Team USA's chances at gold. All that when the news begins, top of the hour on CNBC. Leslie? Uh, All right. I won't be missing it. I hope you don't as well. Thank you so much, Rahel. All show long, we've been asking you to send us your questions. And, well, you delivered. So let's tackle some of them. Here to break it all down, Crossmark Global, Victoria Fernandez. Thank you, Victoria. We've got a lot to get to here. Let's dive into our first question. This one's on Apple. Hey, Fast Money. Travis here from New York. My question today is on Apple. Over the past couple of months, we've seen a rotation out of big tech. However, recently, we've seen quite the turnaround with most of those losses abating. Do you expect Apple's recent run to continue? Thank you very much. All right, Victoria, what do you say? Is there room to run with Apple? 
So the short answer to Travis's question is yes, there is room to run. But saying that, Leslie, doesn't mean that I necessarily think it's a cheap stock. And we have earnings coming up at the end of this month. Apple tends to run up around one and a half, maybe close to 2% before earnings. So Travis, if you're looking to do a shorter term trade, I would be very cautious as we get ready for earnings. First quarter with some of the best earnings reported ever for Apple. I'm not sure we're going to see that again in the second quarter, even though I would assume they're still going to be strong. So if you're looking for a longer term holding in your portfolio, I think Apple is a great name because the trend higher, I think, will continue over time. Just be a little careful in the short term because of earnings. Is that kind of the the solution to tech companies that may have run up, that may have, you know, a a significant premium uh, attached to them from a multiple standpoint and just to, you know, maybe buy now with the plan to hold for the long term? And if so, how long term are we talking about here? So we are longer term holders at Crossmark, and that's the way we tend to look at all of the stocks that we're um, buying to put into the portfolio. So we want something that has longer term growth potential over 12 months, over 24 months. And then you can hold that in your portfolio. You don't have to worry about some of the volatility, even though the VIX today is telling us that we're at low volatility right now. You can place it in your portfolio, take advantage of any gains you have and hold it for the longer term period. I think for some of these growth stocks with the rotation that we've seen with growth and value, that's probably the best way to play it. All right. Next up, a question on Netflix. Hey, Fast Money. It's Sue here from Arlington, and I've got a question on Netflix. So the stock's been moving sideways for the last 18 months or so, and all these media companies are being bought out, so there, there could be a potential content issue down the line. And there's only so many subscribers uh, in the world. So where do you see Netflix five years from now? Is it a buy or a sell? Good question. Uh, on the growth strategy and the potential penetration for Netflix, I mean, is there is there room for this company to grow in five years? So out of the original FANG stocks, <laughs> Netflix is probably our least favorite out of the group. And it's for some of the reasons that Zahir mentioned um, in his question. There is a ton of competition in this space, and we've seen it continue to grow over the last 12 months during the pandemic. So whether you're looking at Disney, whether you're looking at Paramount, Peacock, HBO. I mean, there's just a ton of them. I think half of them are automatically billed on my credit card. I can't even tell you anymore how many of these things I've signed up for. And I think people are going to start to clear that out a little bit. And when you look at Netflix, they've told you that they're going to have a whole new content slate coming up, which means this is going to be really capital intensive. You know every year they're trying to spend a ton of money in order to give the best content, and that's going to hurt them, I think, going forward. As competition increases, that's really going to hurt their margins. And as Zahir said in his question, it comes down to subscribers. They missed that number tremendously last quarter. The guidance for earnings coming up, I think in about two and a half weeks or so, is only a million new subscribers, so we'll see if they're able to reach that or not. But it comes down to the capital intensity on paying for content, and subscribers. So we are not a huge fan of Netflix going forward. I think there's just a little too many headwinds for them. Yeah, content is king, but content does not come cheap. Next up, a question from a fellow Kansan of mine on the reopening. 
Hey, Fast Money, this is Kit from Kansas, and today I'm gonna to ask about Marriott. So Marriott has rocketed back from its 2020 lows, along with similar stocks like Hilton, now trading at, or sometimes even above, their pre-pandemic levels. Some of this may be due to accelerating summer demand, right? People are going out, they're traveling, hotels are full all across the country, but there's an argument to be made that business travel is never coming back to its pre-pandemic levels. So as we progress towards the end of the summer, through Q3 into Q4, how should we look at Marriott and similar travel stocks? Thanks. Mm. That's interesting, Victoria. Business travel and the impact on hotel chains like Marriott, which do tend to serve much more of that business clientele. Yeah, you know, we're seeing, Leslie, we're seeing the same question come up with airlines as well on when is business travel going to come back. But looking at Marriott, it's very similar to a lot of the other reopening trades that, you know, people have talked about over the last six months or so. And what happened is that all of the growth to get them back to pre-pandemic levels was automatically priced in as soon as the economy started to open. So you look at the risk reward profile on a name like Marriott, and I think it gives you a little bit of pause. Yes, you're seeing summer travel come back, but again, as Kit mentioned, business travel is gonna take a while to get there. And also, I think you've got an additional obstacle here as we have the Delta variant of COVID-19 starting to um, gain some traction here. and. There were some states I heard this morning, they were talking about maybe putting the mask mandate back in place because of the Delta variant starting to grow. If that happens, I think hotels are gonna be one of the places where the stocks are gonna get hit first as people start to pull back a little bit out of nervousness. So again, I would be very cautious with any of these reopening trades as I think there's still some obstacles in front of them. Huh, well, if that was the headline of the segment, I think you nailed it right on the head there. Uh, cautiousness surrounding, cautiousness, is that even a word? Being cautious surrounding these reopening trades. We appreciate uh, your insight and for joining us today. Thank you so much, Victoria Fernandez. Uh, coming up, as the economy reopens, financial planning is front and center. We'll talk about the major changes the next generation of financial advisors is bringing to the industry. We're back right after this. Welcome back. As we round out the hour, let's look to the future. The future to financial advisors. Women and minorities still represent a small share of the financial advice industry, but several companies are ramping up initiatives to change that. Senior personal finance correspondent, my former desk mate when we were in the office together, Sharon Epperson, joins us now with more. Hi, Sharon. I miss you, Leslie. Yeah, that, thank you. You know, the number of certified financial planners reached an all-time high at the end of last year, with more than 88,000 CFP professionals industry-wide. Yet only 23% were female, just 2.5% were Latino, and under 2% were black. Morgan Stanley Vice Chair of Wealth Management Carla Harris says the first step in attracting a broader set of talent is to start early. If you expose people early on during college as a summer intern, as a spring break intern, and get them exposed to this business, you will heighten the appetite for more people of color to go into this space, and you can start to build the pipeline that way. Her company, like many others, are recruiting interns and early career professionals from historically black colleges and universities. Tim Jaron, Chief Distribution Officer at Northwestern Mutual, says his firm is also encouraging younger employees to take on leadership roles to make an impact in their communities. Leadership development is a big part of it. 
mentoring, development, and coaching is a really important part of it too, because this is really an apprentice-oriented business. You learn by doing. And we've started to see real traction. Another strategy Northwestern Mutual is using to attract a more diverse set of financial advisors is to have advisors start out as part of a team rather than working on their own. So they have a built-in mentor to show them the ropes. And you can find out a lot more insights about building the next generation of financial advisors online. Go to cnbc.com FA. Leslie? Thank you, Sharon. Such an important story, and I hope to see you back in the office sometime soon. Uh, joining us now, two top voices in the realm of financial advice, Margarita Chang, CEO of Blue Ocean Global Wealth, and Lauren Williams, the founder of Worth Winning and a four-time Olympian. Both are members of CNBC's Financial Advisor Council. Thank you both so much for being here today. Uh, Margarita, what do you make of what Sharon was saying with regard to just the lack of diversity among financial advisors? How important is it for there to be more diversity? And what does it mean uh, for the ability to provide uh, good advice for your clients? Well, sure. I think diversity, equity, inclusion in the financial advice profession is very important. And the reason why is we want our profession to reflect and represent those we serve. Personal finance is, after all, quite personal and is really important to have someone across the table that understands you, or as I say in air quote, gets you. <laughs> that gets you. Uh, speaking of people who get you, Lauren, you advise a lot of young professionals. Uh, and I read in the producer's notes that you say that these young professionals should be focused on estate planning right now. Uh, why is that? Why, why start planning for your estate right now when you're young and working and you know, focused on other things? Yeah. After COVID, we've seen so many unexpected things, you know, uh, uh, play out over the last year. And so estate planning is very important because we don't know what's coming around the corner. But as it pertains to investing, one of the things we've seen a lot of young professionals do is start investing in brokerage accounts. So they pick an app, uh, they pick a platform and they've started investing. But what you don't realize is that those don't generally come with a beneficiary. So as we start having conversations about generational wealth and closing the racial wealth divide, it's very important that you be able to pass those earnings down to the next generation. So you definitely want to make sure you have your estate planning documents in place so that that money doesn't get left hanging out in the balance or the purgatory called probate. So that's really interesting that the new brokerage accounts, the new apps don't tend to have a beneficiary that comes with them. Why do you think that's the case? And do you think that needs to change? Uh, and of course, with crypto as well, that, that same dynamic applies. Yeah, it's one of those things where it would make it really easy to click a button and say, who would you like to you know, inherit this should something happen to you? Uh, it's very standard for IRAs, uh, other retirement accounts, but it's not standard for brokerage accounts. And so it's really important that people be thinking about that. And cryptocurrency is so hard to trace and track uh, that you definitely want to have some estate planning documents in place uh, so that you know where your key should go and, and so how someone else can access, access those funds uh, should you pass away. And Margarita, real quickly, uh, for the few people that have been actually having babies out there in the pandemic with birth rates declining and so forth, uh, you say they should already start focusing on saving for college super quickly because we're running up against time. Absolutely. To open a 529 account, you need your baby's name, date of birth, and social security number. And the reason why 529s can be so powerful is because some states offer benefits, but then you can take advantage of dollar cost averaging, time value of money, and tax-free growth. Uh, Lauren, are you advising the same thing for your young professionals out there who may be in that stage of life? 
definitely it's a, a great way to be able to take advantage of education funding um, and really be able to plan for the future. Yeah, I know that when uh, I had my little guy in the pandemic, that was one of the first things that we talked about doing was this whole 529 plan, how important it was. Who knows how expensive college will be by the time uh, those little ones who are being born now uh, ultimately get there, given the way things are going, especially as it pertains to inflation. Uh, Just real quickly, one last comment, Margarita, on the wealth building trifecta. Sure. So the wealth building trifecta, you can do that for Roth IRAs as well as 529 plans. So the wealth building trifecta is taking advantage of dollar cost averaging. So that's just a fancy way of committing a certain amount, um, time value of money and tax free growth. That's how you can build wealth. All right. Great. Thank you both so much, Margarita and Lauren. That does it for us. Thanks for watching. The News with Shepard Smith starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.